Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milkstreet Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In Manhattan, we would carry the 
quarters of beef in the front door. And someone would be like, oh, God, and literally scream and cover their eyes. And I'd be like, but aren't you so much happier that it's not, you know, mystery meat? That's Jocelyn Guest. Guest and Erica Nakamura are butchers and the founders of J&E Small Goods. Before we hear from Guest and Nakamura, I chat with Gonzalo Guzman. Guzman is the chef and owner of the Nopalito restaurants in San Francisco. His book is called Nopalito, A Mexican Kitchen. Gonzalo, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Catemaco in the Veracruz area of Mexico. Just describe the town to us. Well, we're close to the ocean, but not that close. We're like an hour and a half away. So I grew up in this town, Catemaco, which was like five to 600 people. No electricity, no water. And that was the little town that I was born. So you make it to the United States when you're 15. You made it to San Francisco. And so what did you, you started, I guess, as a dishwasher, right? That was one of your first jobs? Yeah, when, um, when I first came, yeah, that was my first job that I got, washing dishes in this uh, restaurant and here in San Francisco. So you worked at Boulevard in San Francisco and Nopa, both Boulevard, pretty fancy place. Um, when did you start cooking and move up from dishwashing? Well, like three, about three months after I was washing dishes in this uh, restaurant, MacArthur Park, which no longer exists anymore. I was on time working hard, so this chef noticed that, and he asked me to peel some carrots, and I just started peeling carrots. And I told him, hey, I'm a dishwasher, I'm not a prep cook, mainly because I was worried that he was getting confused and that I was trying to be honest, (laughs) not because I didn't want to do the job or anything. But then he says, just do it. I said, okay. And then... um, and then from there, he's like, okay, you're a prep cook now. You're not a, really a dishwasher. So if someone says, this is one of my hobby horses, but if someone says, <laughs> says Mexican food, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that. Is there such a thing as Mexican food? I mean, there's, there's Spanish influence, French influence, Aztec influence. There's the Yucatan. There's the Pacific Coast. I mean, is there any way to define Mexican food, or is it so diverse and has so many different influences that there is no thing you could call Mexican food? Well, for me, when people say, you know, what's Mexican food, it's corn tortillas, and that's about it. <laughs> that's the base of, uh, for me, of Mexican food. And that's why we, in the restaurant, we do the whole process of cooking our corn, making our own masa, making our own tortillas. And to me, Mexican food, that's what it is. It's a tortilla. And then after that, I mean, depending how much money you're coming from, then you can do toppings, you can do meats or sauces. To be honest, myself, there were days where we didn't have any, like, meats or even chilies, you know, when they were not in season because they were kind of expensive and we didn't have any money to buy any of those ingredients. So, you know, we we always had corn, you know, because we used to grow corn, so we would make our masa and we would always have corn sitting around for our tortillas. And then, you know, a lot of the times it was just that and then some sprinkled salt on it and that was our taco. So again, when someone tells me what Mexican food for you, I mean, it's corn, it's a tortilla, pretty much. Uh, in your book, you have a few ceviche recipes. And I, we we were in Peru a year ago and and the first thing we learned was lime juice is not there to cook anything. It's just added right before you serve it. That's exactly the way you do it in your book. So what is ceviche to you? Well, as Mexican, I can say, you know, like soups or ceviches. <laughs> Lime is like the number one ingredient that we will use uh, just for extra f- 
flavor and that acidity is kind of like addicted. So for me, ceviche is just lime juice and a really nice fresh fish or shrimp or anything. doesn't have to be cooked or anything. I know a lot of people do it just because it's a different recipe probably, but to me, like, if I'm in the ocean and I have limes and fish and salt, <laughs> that, that's all I need. I don't really need much, and the lime, what it does, it just, you know, it has acid, so it kind of, like, uh, cured the fish, kind of cooked it a, a little bit on the outside. And, of course, the longer it sits, it probably will cook it through, but uh, then it's not the same. It's not the same experience. You're not tasting the uh, fish anymore. You're tasting chicken if it's cooked all the way. So for me, uh, if I'm eating ceviche that is cooked through, then kind of don't, don't enjoy it anymore. So when you think about cooking a steak, you just don't throw it on the grill and salt it. You do other things. So how would you take a basic backyard grilled steak and, and do it in your style? Honestly, it's whatever I have. <laughs> uh, but it's just a nice piece of uh, steak, and I will uh, most of the time I just do lime juice, garlic, and salt. And that's how I just, you know, a couple hours before I grill it, that's how I do it. But, I mean, if we have beers around, which most of the time we do, <laughs> you know, I will just throw some of that to marinate it. You know, if I have more time, I will, like, make a little chili paste. But it depends how, how much time I have and how complicated, how fancy I want to be. <laughs> so people talked in the food world about using a kamal for cooking. Do, do you use one at home? Could you describe what it is and, and how the best way to use it and what you use it for? Well, honestly, at home I have a little round piece of metal, and that's my comal. Uh, and I, it just depends how you cure it. Like for me, I sometimes I bring a little bit of the uh, nixtamal liquid. That uh, you know, when we cook their corn, we have that mm -hmm. liquid from cooking the corn, and I just spread some of that on my comal just to cure it. That's how you know I learned it from my mom. Like, and that will just help the tortillas not to stick and. I don't know if it really does anything, but again, it's one of those things that you learn when you're little and you just keep doing it. <laughs> so what ha I'm, I'm curious, what happens? You, you move here when you're 15. What, what are the things you had to leave behind? Is there something you wish you could have brought with you that you can't? Or are you perfectly happy now, having been here so many years in the, in the States, this is your home? I mean, I left everything back in Mexico to be honest. Right. right now, it's my family that I built, you know, the last 11, 12 years. But again, you know, I saw my mom last year for the first time after 20 years. Hmm. Same with my sister. I haven't seen my other sister in 20 years, 21 almost. I haven't seen, I mean, all my friends and, I mean, everybody. And all I did was work, work when I got here. So I made some friends, luckily, that I now work and some of them are my partners. So again, I left, I would say, everything, you know, family, my heart, my my everything. And now I just got used to dealing with those things. But, you know, it's, my soul is still there. I try to just keep it separate now, work hard and, you know, do the best I can. You know, cooking is how I can represent my people, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. Gonzalo, thank you so much. Uh, it's a terrific book. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's very approachable and delicious at the same time, which is, is hard to do. No, thank you very much. That was Chef Gonzalo Guzman. His book is called Nopalito, A Mexican Kitchen. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101.
Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Mike from Morrisville, Vermont. Where's Morrisville? Just north of Stowe, up on Route 100. Oh, that's a nice area. Yeah. All of Vermont is nice. Anyway, how can we help how you? How can we help you? Well, I haven't been to Morocco, but I've spent some extended periods of time in Paris. And in Paris, there's a lot of Moroccans. Yep. And Paris also has a lot of butchers. And all the butchers have these wonderful rotisseries outside. And almost all the time, they're filled with chickens. But one day, we saw a meat roast in the rotisserie. And the butcher happened to be outside tending the meats. And I asked him what it was. And he told me it was onion, which right. I had to think for a bit. Okay, it's a lamb. Right. And my wife said, ooh, that sounds really good. And I had had for years an aversion to lamb. I just didn't like it. I had some bad lamb a long time ago, never touched it since. So I said, well, you get that, and I'll get some chopped meat. I'll make a burger, and you have your lamb. And we did it, except that when I sat down to dinner, I smelled this lamb, and it smelled so wonderful, I wound up eating half of it. <laughs> and it was just fabulous. And now I'm back in the States, and I would love to be able to find a recipe that would replicate some of those spices that those guys used in that rotisserie. Well, first of all, they use a mix of warm spices like cinnamon. So they use sweet and sort of savory. Baharat, B-A-H-A-R-A-T, is a spice mix. They often use blends. Ras al-Hanout is another one. So you can get, just buy baharat, for example, that's a spice mix. But I would say cumin, coriander, cinnamon would be three of the key ingredients there. And then harissa, the spicy chili paste with vinegar and some other things, and it depends on how you make it, also could have been used as well. But it's really a spice mix. But the key for me is that there's some warm spices like allspice and cinnamon in the mix, and I think that Mm. that is typical of North Africa to mix that. I believe that it was also in the basting of the lamb that it's basted Mm. constantly with butter, garlic, coriander, and cumin with butter every 10 minutes. You Mm. can put butter, garlic, coriander, and cumin on roadkill. It would taste good. And put it in (laughs) a rotisserie for five or six hours. It would be fantastic. It would be (laughs) <laughs> it didn't matter what it started as. Right, it would right, just end right. up tasting but, but the good. basting, I think, is really key, and, yeah. and just cooking it till it falls off the bone. So. Wow. Boy, yep. That sounds good. Well, yeah, we're all getting hungry that here. real good. So anyway, Mike, thanks so much, and I guess you're not going to get that in stow, right? So. Oh, yeah. I have to do it myself. Yeah. yeah. That's the whole point. But thank you both yeah. very much. Nice to meet you, Mike. Yes. Thank Same you. here. Bye-bye yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking question, just give us a ring anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, my name is Tasha. Hi, Tasha. How can we help you? My question was, in making Italian rainbow cookies, how to get the layers more fluffy or thick? Because when I make them, they kind of sink down. Why don't you explain what they are first and how you make them? Sure. So mixing sugar, almond paste, and butter, and then adding in egg yolks and almond extracts and milk, getting that all mixed in, and then finally you add in egg whites. Divide it up into three different bowls for the three different colors for the different layers. And then I normally bake them in a 9 by 13 pan. So hold on a second. There's flour in these, right? Yes. How about leavener? Is there yeah. baking powder? There's not. 
Do you have enough dough for three 9x13s, or they all bake in one pan? They bake in three different pans. Okay. So you put them in the pan, put them in a 350 oven or something for 15 minutes, 20 minutes? Yeah, so normally do it for about 10 to 12 minutes. And then I guess I don't know if I need more batter or what, because I don't feel like my layers, they fill the pan, but just a covering, not really thick. Hmm. The other question I was going to ask you, the egg whites are beaten? Yes. Beaten how? I just put them in my stand mixer. And beat them until they look like what? Until they're like stiff and fluffy, so they have peaks. You know, one of the things is, especially when there's no sugar added to egg whites, you can overbeat them very easily. So it's possible you're overbeating them without meaning to. Okay. So you might want to go for soft peaks and don't beat them in, on high immediately. Start slow and work your way up. And add a couple of tablespoons of sugar to the whites. I was going to say, take yeah. some out of the base, right. out of the rest of the recipe, and add the sugar to the egg whites, which will stabilize them and help them to do their job and help to give you the lift you need. That's good advice. Yeah. Well, then, so it bakes up, and it's, what, an eighth of an inch thick? It's just very thin? Yes. Well, and sometimes it bakes up, and then after I let it set, it kind of smashes down a little bit. That's normal when you have egg whites in mm-hmm. there. May I offer a revolutionary concept? I don't yes. think beating the egg whites, if you want a stable cookie, I think that's going to make it rise and then fall a little bit. I think you need more batter. But I wouldn't beat the egg white. You'll have a more okay. stable baked cookie, I think. I would go online and check out. Compare what, some other yeah, recipes. Look at other okay. recipes, see if they beat the egg whites, whether the proportion of batter to the pan is right. Sounds like it's a little bit low. I think what Chris suggested is yeah. a good one. I'm pretty sure the egg whites are usually beaten, but what the heck, what the hey, look at a few other recipes. Yeah, and okay. just use more batter. So. Yeah. Okay, right. Tasha, thanks for thanks, calling. Tasha. Thank you. I appreciate your advice. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, a lesson in butchery from Erica Nakamura and Jocelyn Guest. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just 
gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. A generation ago, most butchers were opening up boxes of pre-cut meat that had been shipped in from the Midwest. Today, however, the artisanal butcher is back with an intimate knowledge of both carcass and cuts. To help you become a better shopper, we've invited Erica Nakamura and Jocelyn Guest to Milk Street to explain both the cuts and the techniques. Erica and Jocelyn, uh, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Pleasure. Uh, the quote is, butchery is making small pieces out of big pieces, which I really, I really liked. Uh, it's a little more complicated than that, but, but that is the basic theory, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the broad strokes. It's like a very tangible job. Like, you can look at what you've done at the end of the day, and you're like, that was a cow, and now it's a bunch of ribeyes and chuck roast and everything else. All the way down to the trim. Yeah. So... Let's go back to the beginning. So uh, when you guys carve up meat or butcher meat, uh, do you go back to the source 
you know, where the meat's coming from, how the animal's slaughtered, et cetera? Is that all part of what you consider to be the profession of being a good butcher? Absolutely. I mean, you know, part of what we focus on so much is the well-being of the farmer, how the land is being cared for, all the way to how the animal's then being cared for and fed, the matter at which it gets transferred to the slaughterhouse, um, how the slaughterhouse operates, and then all the way to our doorstep. And then it's our ultimate responsibility to do the right thing with the product that we get. Yeah, I mean, every farmer that we've worked with, we've literally like sat in their living room and eaten cookies and talked about what they do. I mean, that's the best part. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, I think that also it makes us better butchers. Like not only, you know, do we know exactly where everything comes from and we can then, you know, our customers can kind of trust that we actually know what we're talking about. But also, you know, when you see the farm, you're not going to disrespect the animal if you're like tired or you're in a hurry or whatever it is. That's an interesting notion. You talk about disrespecting the animal. This is now a carcass. It's a dead animal. You remember the book Animal Liberation, Mm -hmm. well-known from 1975? And he wrote about the notion of if you eat meat, there's a right way to raise slaughter and serve meat, and there's a wrong way. And we have a responsibility to the animal to do it the right way. When you go to a slaughterhouse, I've been to a couple is there a right way to do it versus a wrong way to do it? And what is the right way to do it? I guess for us, what we're looking for is, you know, first off that a slaughterhouse isn't processing too many animals at once, because then you start to see that some steps are being skipped or, you know, there's less quality where there's more quantity. But aside from that, what we look for is like quick efficient types of slaughter that are very well focused and super sanitary. So, you know, we take a look at where the animals are being held. So in pens while they're still living and just like, you know, the manner at which the folks who are working there go about their work. So, and I think even before the slaughter process happens, like we don't, we work really hard to find slaughterhouses close to the actual farm so that the animals aren't, you know, right. in a big truck for what, like some people drive like two, three hours and it mm-hmm. agitates the cows and the pigs and everything else. And a lot of places that we work with, they'll receive the livestock the night before so they can kind of like mellow out and like they're not just like shoved off a truck and then, you know. You know, it's interesting in our culture that people who are very, Oh, culturally conscious uh, and concerned about welfare and animal welfare, they really don't want to know what goes on in a slaughterhouse. And there have been, I remember years ago, I ran into some filmmakers who'd made a, an expose of the big commercial slaughterhouses and, and 60 Minutes refused mm-hmm. to run the piece because it was just going to be too difficult for people to stomach the poor metaphor. Sure. Um, well, why do you think that is? Because Because people who were normally, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't hurt a fly. Or when I say I like to go rabbit hunting, they yell at me, (laughs) but they go and buy their hamburger in the supermarket and don't want to know anything about where it came from. There's this sort of duality there, right? (laughs) Like just don't don't ask, don't tell, right? Yeah, (laughs) certainly. I don't know. I mean, you know, when we were, when we were in Manhattan, we would carry the quarters of beef in the front door. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for us, so much of what we do is also about teaching customers and teaching the next generation of folks coming up how to eat well. 
And someone would be like, oh God, and like literally scream and cover their eyes. And I'd be like, but aren't you so much happier that it's not like mystery meat that is available for purchase? Like, I think that people kind of like to keep the blinders on because they don't want to actually confront that like maybe they buy crappy meat, you know, and maybe they're contributing to a system that needs to change. So now is my personal opportunity to get a butchering lesson from you guys. So, I, sure. you know, I've, I've stood up on television and given lessons knowing about a tenth as much as you do. So maybe you could start. I think people have no idea about cuts. Uh, and California, as you say, versus New York is totally different. Could you take us from nose to tail for the primal cut, starting with a chuck, and just sort of explain each one as you go? Uh, well, uh, the chuck, if you want to take a look at the whole animal, right, uh, almost as a diagram or as an anatomical drawing, the chuck is the shoulder end, and you'd follow it all the way down towards the tail, so the hind leg would essentially be what we call a round. So with the chuck, you're going to find that it's typically from like the first to the fourth or fifth rib, depending on where you might be in the country or, you know, how you're going to be fabricating and what the uses of it are. Um, but you're going to see the chuck, which is, you know, typically like a chuck roast, chuck eye steak sometimes. And then neighboring to it, you'll see a brisket, which most of these cuts in the shoulder are going to be braising cuts or slow roasting cuts. And that's for the main reason, it's because the shoulder gets so much exercise, right? So these muscles are going to be denser and harder to break down during the cooking process. But once you give it the appropriate application, it becomes like the melt-in-your-mouth variety of pot roast and some of my favorite cuts for sure. Um, along with those cuts, you'll get you know some of Jocelyn's favorite cuts like... Um, the flat iron is... Definitely yeah. one of my favorite. Now, now let, let me stop you there. Sure. Where does the flat iron come from? And, and where where does a hanger steak come from? So, okay, so if you take your arm and you, like, try to scratch your own back, you know how your shoulder blade comes out? Uh-huh. So the flat iron is on either side of that ridge of your shoulder blade. So a lot of people will wow. call it the top blade. Right. It sits on the top of the yeah. shoulder blade. So a top blade steak is a flat iron steak? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And the hanger steak? So the hanger steak sits right on the kidneys. So if you follow, like, if you feel your rib cage all the way down to the last rib uh -huh. and you follow it all the way to the back where it connects with your spine, right, that's basically mm -hmm. where it's going to be hanging. But it's, a, it's also attached to the skirt steak, which is essentially the muscle that diaphragm. holds the lungs together yeah. in place inside your rib cage. Um, and then on the other end of it, it connects to the kidneys. Yeah. So super delicious. Yeah. So the hanger steak is actually one of the most nutritious cuts, right? Because all of those nutrients. Like filtering through the yeah, liver. Exactly. Filtering through, yeah. And then kind of end up going right through there. It took me 40 years for someone to explain that to me. Thank you. <laughs> so the, the, if you start with a fifth or sixth rib at the beginning, the front of the animal, the beginning of the rib section, the ribs go all the way to the 12th rib. Is that right? From the fifth to the 12th? How far does it go? Yes. Fifth to the 12th. Okay. It goes to the... So let's talk about how many ribs there are. So you'll have five on top if you get like a proper export rib, which typically the rib 
the rib end has like seven ribs, right? right. Um, the reason for that is because you leave the final rib in place to prop up the short loin for dry aging purposes so that you have, oh. you know, like not a collapsing porterhouse, so to speak. Does that make sense? You've answered another question. I always wondered why the 13th <laughs> rib was, was in the short loin. I, now I know. Okay. So the rib, the rib has, has rib roast, of course, which is a, a great right. cut. And now, now you get into the the loin, and what's the difference between the short loin and the loin? So, short loin and the loin. I mean, to me, they're almost synonymous, right? The short loin is more of a reference to the whole section, I think. Uh, so it'll have the additional like belly flap that comes with it. On that, you're going to see your flank steak. You're going to see your bavette or your flap steak, right? And those are big, big, big favorites in a, in a retail world. So, yeah, so this, those are basically like human obliques, if that makes that sense. Sure. To like reorient, like your side abs. Oh, were, were I yeah, to have no. abs, <laughs> I thought that was going to be my side abs. Um, so, so you get the loin. And then now talk to me about the sirloin, because yeah. I find sirloin for most people to be incredibly confusing. So there's a top sirloin, a bottom sirloin, there's a sirloin steak, which is something else. So so how does the loin and the sirloin connect? The loin is kind of like the upstairs neighbor of the sirloin, right? Okay. Like the New York strip, which is your loin, yeah. ends, and then that's when your sirloin begins, which okay. sits right under your pelvis. The way I also think about it is that the loin, right, like if you follow the vertebrae all the way down towards the tail, uh-huh. the loin continues until the until the vertebrae meets that the corner where it turns into the tail. That's a really nice way to think about, you know, where the sirloin begins and where the loin is. These are all muscles, right? You can certainly isolate independent muscles and pull them apart. But in American butchery, you know, there's very defined places where you make your incision in order to have your steaks. So... The obvious question is steak. So, so what are the steak choices? And I know in a lot of places like France, as you, you mentioned, Bevette, for example, they, they don't think about the steaks the way we do. So how do we think about steaks and what are some kinds of steaks maybe people should buy that they don't now? Um, this is a little bit of a cop-out answer, but I think anything, if it's cooked well, can be delicious. You know what I mean? Like I think people always want tenderloin or skirt steak or whatever that is. And like, I really love the flat iron. I think it's always really great. And then there's the steak that we call the oyster steak that I really like that sits on top of the pelvis. And it's kind of like this super fatty, really thin round muscle. It almost eats like a skirt steak. Yeah. um, But with a little extra like richness to it. I mean, when I think about, you know, uh, the way Americans tend to consume steaks, we think about barbecue, we think about like a quick pan roast, right? And those are all going to be these tender, juicy cuts that we're used to. But there are other cuts that start creeping into that territory that need a little extra love. And I think a bavette is one of them. Just describe what, what a bavette is and where it comes from. Sure. So it comes from the short loin section. The base of the steak where it's the thickest actually is a neighboring muscle to like the very tip of the New York strip. So it 
runs along the side of the uh, the belly, if you will. Do you, do you guys ever feel like you speak Portuguese or something that nobody around you speaks? <laughs> Is it hard for you to communicate with normal people like me about this? <laughs> That, that can be true, but you'd be shocked how many, like, texts and phone calls Jocelyn and I get, like, hey, you know, I'm sitting at this restaurant and there's this random thing on the menu. Can you tell me what it is? You know, we're always happy to do that. But, I mean, perhaps we're idiot savants in our own way, you know, um, <laughs> which we're okay with, I think. What are the parts that really excite you about being a you know, first-class butcher? I mean, the, the breaking down of the animal is, like, definitely the best when you can just like put on really loud music and like not have to worry about all the other parts of your job and you just like get to do what you love, you know? And I um, think plus it's a workout. It's yeah. fun. I mean, it's funny. I think when I was when I was younger, butchering itself was all that I cared about. And then you start to realize, well, without your customer, you got nothing, right? You're not making any money, you're not keeping the lights on. And so before before I knew it, at least, I spent more time talking with customers and really forging relationships that were one-on-one and important, um, and then ultimately making sure that your staff can do the same. I mean, there's nothing better than somebody coming back in the shop and being like, holy crap, that was like the best chuck roast or the best turkey or like whatever it is. Like that's, I think, probably the most rewarding part. Yeah, a friend of mine's French, and he he told me every couple of months he'd go to his butcher and yell at him and complain. And he'd come out and say, well, I was just, <laughs> I was just keeping them honest. It was part of the whole way of, you know, the French buying retail. Do, do you have customers who, who like to keep you honest? Totally. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. We'll get like texts, phone calls, Instagram messages, like about anything and everything, you know, it's, whether they're yeah. happy, whether they're not. And I, I always encourage people to, feel free to yell at us, you know, because like, I don't want something to be not excellent. Yeah. Like one lady came in once for a leg of lamb and she was like, I need you to crack it. And I was like, what, how the hell do you crack a leg of lamb? (laughs) And you basically go, you go like right above the shank, like where the kneecap is. And you just like cut, you know, maybe like an inch deep in that joint. So then she could crack it and fit it in her pot (laughs) and like bend it a little bit. And I was like, you're a genius, woman. (laughs) Where did you come from? Eric and Jocelyn, thank you so much. Uh, I got my meat 201 today. And you guys just do a great job, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good one. That was Erica Nakamura and Jocelyn Guest, the founders of J&E Small Goods, where they craft sausages from sustainably and responsibly raised animals. At our farm in Vermont, we used to butcher our pigs at the end of September. Using a 22 rifle, a pig was stunned and then bled out, hauled up on a tractor bucket, gutted, and then skinned before bringing it by pickup to the local meat locker to be broken down into the roast chops and ground meat that we had requested. Although the kids were told that they might not want to watch, they all did. They were fascinated by the process, not repelled, and today they're able to make their own decisions about eating meat. At least they know where it comes from. Looking into barns and slaughterhouses to see what goes on is an excellent start. We can't decide what to do unless we know what we are doing. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Armenian grilled pork. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I did not get to go to Armenia, but one of our editors, Albert, did recently. 
And he spent some time with a local family doing a classic sort of pork barbecue. This is not a kettle drum they use. This is a big, like, rectangular grill. Lots of fat in the meat, lots of coals, lots of smoke. So what we want to do is bring this back to Milk Street. But they also did some grilled vegetables, which turned into a sauce, which we thought was really interesting. So how do we take that Armenian barbecue and make it here in the States? We took the Armenian feast and found a way to make it on your backyard grill really easily. Chris, to start, we use a marinade, and that's a little unconventional. Generally in Armenia, they use dry rubs. But we found that a marinade with oregano and onion made this really delicious, juicy pork. Then we head over to the grill. And Chris, to mimic some of that smokiness that you would get in these Armenian big barbecues, we used fruit wood chips. And you don't even need to soak them in water. You just put them dry in a foil packet. Yeah, if you soak them, you get a lot of steam. But you don't actually get any real smoke until all the water evaporates, so it doesn't really make any sense. So the most interesting part of this recipe is those vegetables, grilled vegetables, that are turned into a sauce. So how do you do that on the grill? So the first thing we did, Chris, is char those vegetables over high heat. So we have plum tomatoes and cubanel peppers. We decided to skip the eggplant, which is kind of traditional there, and just amp up the peppers and the tomatoes. And then after they're charred, we cook them with garlic and lots of butter and finish it with a little hit of vinegar for some nice acid that plays with the fatty pork. Now, is this just grilled directly on the grill or do you using an aluminum pan? How do you do it? So you grill it directly on the grill and then you transfer it to a disposable aluminum pan. So it's a very easy recipe, but there is a little bit of a dance because both the pork and the vegetables start on high heat and then finish over the cooler part of the grill. Catherine, thank you. Armenian grilled pork done on a backyard grill, marinated pork chops, nice and thick ones, by the way, at least an inch thick, and grilled along with some vegetables, which turn into a great sauce. Catherine, thank you. Thanks, Chris. For the recipe for Armenian grilled pork, go to 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Milk Street Radio, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find the show and encourages them to listen. Thank you. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. 
That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Straight Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a few more of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Laura Dangle from St. Louis. Hi, Laura. How can we help you today? I love popcorn. I love making popcorn at home. And uh, my favorite is with lots and lots of butter, but that is a sometimes treat. <laughs> and so uh, what I have tried is olive oil. It gives me that buttery taste. But I'm finding when I'm done, I have this pucker in my mouth and a chalky taste. Is that... All olive oils is that... Um, well, are you using the olive oil just as a topping or... Yes. You, okay. You're not cooking it in the olive oil. No, I'm it. using it as a topping with some salt and pepper. Is this extra virgin olive oil? Yes. Well, that is weird, I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's an expert comment you just No, really. I just don't see any reason why it should be chalky. Is it always the same brand? I don't think so. I think it's been a few different brands, usually just a something I get at the supermarket, not super expensive. How do you store your olive oil? Is it near the stovetop? Is it in a pantry? No, it's in a cupboard, cool, dark place. Do you go through it pretty quickly? Usually, yes. Hmm. I don't get chalky. I, I don't know. It, it's a feeling in my mouth uh, more than a taste. I can understand when you get an off taste. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you said you use lots of different kinds. You keep it in a cool, dark place. You don't store it a long time. You run through it. I wonder mm-hmm. if there's some chemistry here going on. 
it's, I mean, should I t- try just regular olive oil and not extra virgin? You know, we just did a test at Milk Street. We tested a bunch of oils for smoke points. Mm-hmm. And a processed olive oil actually has a very high smoke point. Whereas a extra virgin, because it has lots of solids, it's unfiltered, a lot of it will smoke at a much lower rate. So why don't you try a, a light olive oil like Pompeian or something like that, which has much less flavor. But see okay. if you get that chalky or sour puckering taste. And if you don't, then it's because it's extra virgin and maybe the heat is doing something to it. But that's it's the only weird. thing. I, it's still weird. It's weird because yeah. popcorn, by the time it's popped, is not that hot. Well, maybe your popcorn isn't that hot, but I mean. We're not it, talking about my popcorn. It's in the objective to have kind of hot popcorn. I would try that, but I, we need to ask a food scientist this. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if something's going on. I've never had that problem. And I use olive oil. You do? Yeah, for the same reason that Laura does. Well, the the only other thing you could try is buy a really good brand. California Olive Ranch, for example, which is available in a lot of stores, is pretty good. It's fresh. Some of the olive oils you might be buying in the supermarket have been shipped over from Europe and could be quite old by the time you get it. So try California Olive Ranch. That's fresh. So try that. Okay. Yeah. I can check that out. All right, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so very much. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. How can we help you today? Well, I was perusing, you know, recipes on various websites, and I ran across a recipe on a website I like a lot that sort of specializes in sort of healthy California-style food that called for cacao powder. And then when I looked at it, it seems like it's cocoa powder but not roasted, and I couldn't quite figure out what the difference is in terms of taste mostly. I mean, I read up and I, it's, I guess people like, they figure if it's cacao, it has enzymes that get killed off in the roasting process or something. That's right. Yeah, cacao powder is just cold-pressed cocoa beans that are not roasted, mm-hmm. as opposed to cocoa, which is roasted beans that are turned into powder. And, of course, the fat is removed as well. I've looked it up, actually, once. Someone said you have to use more... Dutch processed cocoa than cacao powder because cacao powder may be stronger tasting, mm-hmm. but I'd, I've never tested it. I would try one-to-one, but I would think the cold press is going to be a stronger flavor. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine. Okay. Isn't that a good thing? Definitely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I'll experiment with it just for fun. Oh, and please get back to us. We like the follow-up. Okay. Well, well, I have some cacao powder in my pantry, so I will make something and let you know how it comes out. We like that. Let us know. Yeah. I will. Thank okay. you Thank very you. much. Thanks. Bye. Yep. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Call us anytime with your questions at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Pat from Los Angeles. Hi, Pat. How are you? Hi, Pat. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. And let me uh, take a chance to say thanks for your great radio show and helping people cook and eat better. Well, thank you. So how can we help you? Well, earlier this year, I received a Brooklyn Copper Cookware Sauté Pan as a gift from a dear friend. And it's a beautiful pot. It's very heavy and shiny, and I know it was very expensive, so I made sure to read the brochure that came with it. And that says this is a handmade pot, and it will last for generations. But they also gave dire warnings about how it's vulnerable to abuse, such as the inner tin layer melting away Mm -hmm. or getting scratched and the outside copper getting damaged and stained. So I'm a bit intimidated by this pot. I'm tempted just to put it on the wall and admire it. But since my friend bought it for me to cook with, 
I wanted your advice. How best to make use of such a pot? And it's obviously special properties. Back in the 70s, I bought a huge set of copper cookware from the Charles Lamal company. It's still hanging in my kitchen. The outside <laughs> looks a little ragged. And there are places where the tin is melted a little, but I still use it. Number one, never heat the pan and walk away with nothing in it because the tin can melt. You can get it retinned, by the way. That's the only thing you really have to watch out for. The outside, white vinegar, you can clean the outside of the pot. So that's really not hard. You know, Julia cooked on that stuff for well, a long time. Well, the thing is, this, this was the pan of choice for right. French chefs and, you know, serious high-end chefs because copper's the best conductor of heat right. by far. So there's a reason to cook on it because it's so good. I was just going to add something to cleaning the outside. Every time I use my copper bowl, I clean it out with kosher salt and vinegar. white vinegar, and it will do the trick. But it's worth right. using it because it's it performs yeah, don't, so don't amazingly. Don't put it on the wall. No, use it. Just use it. I mean, <laughs> so, also over time, it shows its use, you know, and experience, yeah. and kind of like Sarah and me, you know. Yeah, years have been <laughs> kind of kind, but yeah, yeah, we show our experience. So, yes. What are the best types of dishes to take advantage of this particular kind of pot? It's a nine and a half inch saute pan. I'm not really sure what the best kind of dishes to cook in it would be. I tend to cook in either a Dutch oven or a big skillet. By saute, you you mean straight edged on the sides or angled? Straight. Well, I would say a braise. I think you can do anything in there. It will do well at low heat, but if you wanted to sear a steak, it would be perfect. It'll get you great crust. I see. Okay. It's good for everything. That's very helpful. So use that, puppy. Yeah. I will. Okay. All right. You've inspired me. Thanks Take care. Again. Thanks okay. for calling. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here's an authentic way to cook your pasta in the sauce. So to enhance the flavor of your pasta, first of all, undercook it by a couple minutes. Then finish it directly in the hot, simmering sauce. The thirsty pasta will greedily soak up that liquid for maximum flavor. By the way, save at least a half cup of the cooking water to both thin out the pasta as needed, otherwise it becomes too thick. And also, the cooking water contains a fair amount of starch, which helps the sauce cling to the pasta. By the way, the same tip can also be used with couscous, which is nothing more than a very small form of pasta. You can find out more at MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, I chat with Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I hope you've not been reading the news lately. You probably got upset about something you saw when it comes to health and food. Actually, this was less upset um, and something that I actually thought was interesting and promising. Um, it's, it's that some countries are actually starting to tax junk food mm. in an interesting experiment to see whether that can improve what people eat and perhaps make a dent in what many people call the obesity epidemic. So this is here in the United States. Is this happening? No. So in the United (laughs) States, there have been eight municipalities or cities that have actually started to tax soda um, since 2013. So a lot of this is very recent. And not too long ago, actually, the United Kingdom uh, actually started a sugar tax targeting sugar drinks as well. So we're starting to see some of that in the United States. And that's different than some of the soda bans that were taking place before that, specifically in places like New York City, which didn't really hold. Um, Taxes are often popular, but everything in the United States has focused on sugary beverages. But in 2011, Hungary actually put a four-cent tax on packaged food and drinks with high levels of sugar and salt, Hmm. um, and especially in certain product categories, which included soft drinks, candy, condiments, 
jellies, and salty snacks. And a couple years later, Mexico passed an 8% tax on snacks, nut butters, cereal-based products, sweets, what we would consider to be non-essential foods. And especially, they looked at foods that were specifically dense in calories, having more than 275 calories per 100 grams. So these were much more specifically targeted at junk food. And they appear to be working. Um, in an evaluation of the, of the Mexican junk food tax, people in the first year bought about 5% less junk food than they did. And in the second year, they bought 7%. So contrary to what people thought, over time, it actually accumulated in that people were buying fewer and fewer junk snacks. The hungry tax is a little more interesting because it looks at the nutritional value of foods, not just calories, which is more what Mexican is doing. And what this allows companies to do is to try to adjust what they are making in order to avoid those taxes. Um, because especially in the United States, these things would much more easily work as excise taxes on companies than they would sales taxes on people at the point of sale. What, what, what is an excise tax? So an excise tax is something that, that a company would pay to, directly to the government before they ever even try to sell something. For it. So, so they could at that point choose to pass the tax on to consumers or they could choose to absorb it. In the United States, the federal government does not have any sort of mechanism to collect sales taxes. Those are all based at the state or municipality level. So an excise tax would be much more easily implemented uh, at the federal level, as was recently published in, a, in an interesting paper in the American Journal of Public Health, where some researchers not only looked at this, but also talked about how we might do this in the United States. And they really pushed the idea that trying to do this based on nutritional value and what nutrients are in it is a great idea because it gets companies to change the content. And if they will change what they are selling, often reducing the amount of sugar, reducing the amount of salt, then they could avoid the excise tax and you know, we would all be eating more healthily. Now, this is a great idea. And it's like, you know, there, there are lots of reasons to argue for this, but of course, it, it still doesn't ignore a lot of the problems in the United States that we see with respect to food policy in that we subsidize the growing of of foods which are not necessarily those that are best for us. Right now, potatoes and tomatoes make about half the legumes and vegetables that are sold in the United States. Junk food, on the other hand, is super easy to get and is often very cheap. Somewhere between a third and a half of the calories that adolescents get is from junk food. So theoretically, trying to attack what we are getting through junk food taxes does have promise. But I think we'd also have to try to change food policy in making food that is better for us cheaper through subsidies rather than the way we do subsidies right now, which often makes bad food for us cheap. But the thing I always think about when we talk about this is that the rise in obesity, and that was the curve towards unhealth, is so vertical. And mm -hmm. a 5% or 4% or 7% decrease in the consumption of junk foods compared to the hockey stick going up in the other direction. Yeah. You'd have to have a major change in people's habits and consumption patterns to really even balance out the long-term rate of obesity, right? No question. And which is why I think some of these things would have to be looked at from a preventive standpoint. When we talk about, again, how much calories adolescents get from junk food and, and younger children as well, some of this is if we can nip that in the bud before the obesity occurs and try right. to make smaller changes to their long life dietary habits, it might make a big difference. But you're absolutely correct. If we want to do large-scale policy changes that are going to affect obesity, we'd also have to get at the food supply and how we subsidize and you know pay for food 
being sold and grown as well as we do trying to, to, to curb people's habits by making the food that's bad for them more expensive. Well, we could just leave with one last thought. You know, a couple of years ago, Mark Bittman wrote an editorial in the New York Times about school lunches. And I almost fell mm-hmm. off my chair. Mexico spends, I'd have forgotten the number, three or four times more per kid per day oh, yeah. than the United States. Yep. Uh, and we think of ourselves as a first real power with lots of money and everything else. But here's, here's Mexico. So it's just a question of priorities, right? I mean, that, that's the place you would, you would start to serve good food. It really is, and you've just made me think we should talk about the school lunch program because the amount that we choose to spend is unbelievably low, and the fact that schools are even able to feed children a meal that we would argue even might be healthy on the small amounts that we're spending is inconceivable, which is often why you wind up with these very processed food products which are specifically designed just to meet school nutritional lunch requirements with no thought as to actually what's in them or whether they're good for kids. Is it cocktail hour yet? <laughs> Somewhere I, I, it is. This is really depressing. <laughs> well, I, there's a brighter future out there somewhere. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. This week, I interviewed Gonzalo Guzman, author of Nopalito, A Mexican Kitchen. Guzman defined Mexican cooking as corn tortillas, which got me thinking about the usefulness of this simple ingredient. You know, in the old days, corn was used for cornbread, hoe cakes, mush, polenta, and of course, tortillas. But today, corn is in almost everything, from corn-based plastics, batteries, cornstarch, corn syrup, matchsticks, and textiles, to medications, vitamin C, crayons, yogurt, glue, toothpaste, soaps, and explosives. Corn used to be life, and today it's an industrial ingredient. And that makes Guzman's handmade corn tortillas more than a food. They're really a way of life. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 